Well, this morning we will turn to probably one of the most controversial passages in all the New Testament, Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. Over the years, many have bristled at these verses, and others have downright hated them. But I think most believers simply are uncomfortable with them, in part due to poor teaching or no teaching. But it's my conviction that understanding and applying these verses is the key to loving and genuine church unity. How so? Well, Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3 instructs us to live and walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which we've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, it's easy to do when trouble and sin are absent, but as soon as sin creeps in, unity is put at risk. See, oftentimes, Our sins impact other people. Our sins aren't always just between us and God. They very often impact others around us. We hurt other people. They hurt us. Relationships are strained, even damaged. And the only way to fix the problem is first to address the sin. And when the sin is addressed, repentance can be expressed, forgiveness can be granted, and then the parties can be reconciled and true unity is maintained. But when sin is not dealt with, there can be only false peace, and with false peace comes false unity. But there's another reason that Matthew 18, 15 to 20 is important. More than facilitating forgiveness and peace and reconciliation and unity among believers, there is also the great importance of maintaining communion with God. To be clear, Romans 5.1 tells us that having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, to be very clear, our peace, our union, our eternal reconciliation comes through the finished work of Christ. However, once we have been redeemed, God commands us to live a life of holiness, to live a life that is pleasing to Him. We read in 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16, as obedient children, and that's what we are, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, we understand that this side of heaven, we cannot be uh, sinless, we'll never have a perfection in our holiness. But as long as we are still in our earthly bodies, we will be tempted to sin, and when we do, we appeal to the cleansing power of Christ's blood, and we seek His forgiveness. And so that is the only way that we can find forgiveness is through Christ. And yet, our lives should still be marked, not by rebellion and outward sinfulness, but by a life of sanctified obedience unto the Lord. That is the command of our Lord to us. But what happens when we find ourselves caught in a pattern of sinful behavior? Well, the answer is that the Lord Jesus provides in His provident kindness an agent of reconciliation to help us in our time of need. And so with that, I would invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 18 this morning. 
We're continuing verse by verse through Matthew 18. I contemplated pushing the pause button today for Mother's Day, but then I was just convinced and convicted to just keep on moving. I really believe these verses are applicable to all of us and certainly to those who are raising small children. Who better to, to be exposed to this teaching this morning than to those who are entrusted with the, the next generation of those who would be reconciled? And so again, I, I firmly believe that these verses have such value and such marvelous beauty for us even this morning. We've been working through this chapter, and we've seen that Jesus has a special heart for His little ones, as He calls them, His little ones, those who belong to Him. And in verse 6, He even warns that whoever causes one of His little ones to stumble, He says it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone tied to his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. And so we are not to cause believers to stumble into sin. Furthermore, he says in verse 10, we are not even to, to despise them. He warns against despising them in our hearts. Even how we regard each other, how we think about each other, the Lord is watching that as well. Rather, the Lord's desire is that those who have strayed away from the flock, whether they have fallen into sin whether they've simply backslidden from the faith, whether they've just become disenfranchised with Christianity or with the church. Wherever they are, where they have strayed away, that straying sheep should be sought after, found, and brought home. The whole heartbeat of this entire chapter, even to the very end, we talk about forgiveness. The entire chapter of Matthew 18 is about bringing lost sheep back home. It's a beautiful and marvelous image for us to be contemplating this morning. Verse 14, it is not the will of God, our Father, that any of His little ones should perish. That's a great comfort to us all. But starting in verse 15, the Lord here, which is remarkable, the Lord lays out our part in rescuing sheep that have gone astray and in participating in the work of reproof, reconciliation, and restoration, we ourselves are doing the blessed work of the Lord with Him. And so Matthew 18, starting in verse 15, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. Now, these verses expound on this concept that we understand to be church discipline. Now, what is church discipline? It's a scary term for those who might not know it. It sounds terrifying, but what is church discipline? In his book, The Pursuit of Prodigals, Pastor Stephen Davey broadly defines it as this. It is the confrontive and corrective measures taken by an individual, church leaders, or congregation regarding a matter of sin in the life of a believer 
or to give a secondary definition, it is to, it is to actively, uh, it is actively geared toward the restoration of those who are walking in disobedience. And now, there are several places that Scripture talks about and instructs us uh, on how to demonstrate church discipline. We see examples of it all throughout the Bible, but the most explicit and practical teaching comes directly from the Lord Jesus right here in Matthew 18. And so when we examine this passage very closely, we see that Jesus gives us several degrees or steps of church discipline. And they range from the most private to the most public, from the most gentle to the most severe. And the degree to which a person moves down that scale is based on the hardness of their own heart. Now, typically, we tend to speak of four steps or four degrees of church discipline in Matthew 18, but in his book, Handbook on Church Discipline, Jay Adams argues that there's actually five steps here. Again, traditionally, we have seen that step one as a, a one-to-one confrontation, that's verse 15. Step two is normally two or more. Step three is the correction by the church body. And step four is being delivered over to the world or excommunication. But Adams argues that step one is actually self-discipline, self-discipline. In fact, we see this demonstrated in verses 8 and 9. Jesus says, and we talked about this several weeks ago, Jesus says to us, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. Then he repeats the same sentiment. In in essence, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than having two eyes and to be cast into the fiery hell. Now, he's not meaning literal. We talked about that. This is a metaphor, a metaphor for the the severity, the extent of our resolve to fight against our own sin nature. And so this really is step one. If you are vigilant in rooting out sin in your own life, if you are vigilant in your own self-discipline and devotion to the Lord, then these other steps will not be as applicable to you as you move ahead. But we see here the first line of defense is your own spirit-informed conscience. The more you develop a conscience against sin and toward righteousness, the more effective you will be in fighting this. However, when you are either blind to your sin or you're hardened by it, that's when we need a brother or a sister to lovingly confront us so that we can be restored. And so we will examine each of these steps by the Lord that He provides, and we're going to take one at a time. We're not going to do all in one sermon. That would be, we'd be here for four or five hours. So we're going to just slow it down. We're going to take one at a time. And I just want to sort of meditate on these because I think this is going to be really helpful for us as a church as we progress Today we're looking only at verse 15, and I've titled this sermon, How We Can Rescue Straying Sheep by Ourselves. Verse 15 again, very simple. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Now, Jesus begins this scenario here uh, with a person who's committed a sin. And he notes, he says, if your brother sins... The first thing we have to note here in this instruction is that this is a a believer who's caught in some kind of a trespass. This is a brother, or I would even add a sister. When we talk about brother uh, in this context, it's meant to be general, all believers here. So a brother or a sister in Christ who is caught in any kind of sin. 
Jesus prescribes here, this is not just for, uh, this is for dealing with believers only. This is not for unbelievers. And the question is, so what do we do when unbelievers sin? Well, the Apostle Paul addresses this actually, uh, church discipline. He's talking about a case that happens in Corinth. I'm just going to read some of these verses to you. In the beginning of 1 Corinthians 5, there's an actual church discipline case, which we're going to examine greater in a different sermon here. But he talks about what do you do with people who sin around you that aren't Christians? Because don't we run into some of those every now and then? Those who are not in the faith, who do terrible, terrible things to us and to others? And Paul says this in verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. And you say, all right, amen. But then he says this, I did not mean at all with the immoral people of the world or with the covetous or swindlers and with the idolaters. He says, because then you'd have to go out of the world. He didn't know about space travel, but you'd have to get on a rocket ship and go to the moon to get away from sinful people. He says, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother so-called brother, if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But for those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So we're not talking about sitting here and just passing judgment on every single person in the world who commits sin. First of all, it's not our job. Second of all, there's no way for us to do it. And we can't expect holiness and righteousness from them because they don't have Christ. So Christ has to either redeem them or he has to deal with them. But it is not for us to condemn every single person outside of our midst. That's not our job. Paul specifically talks about dealing with those who are within the church, and that's where Jesus goes here as well. The responsibility for believers is not to play sin police to the world, but rather to reconcile. So important we hear this word. Our job is to reconcile those who are among us who have strayed, those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. So Jesus says, if your brother sins. Now, some translations, including the King James, include the words against you. If your brother sins against you, this personalizes the sin. Now, there are several things to consider here. When someone sins against you, you do have options, believe it or not. You do have options. Proverbs 19.11 says that a man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is to his glory to overlook an offense. If someone says or does something to you that hurts you, you are not required to go and get your pound of flesh. You can quietly forgive them in your heart and move on. It is possible. Someone says something nasty to you or they do something that was hurtful. And here's the thing, nine times out of ten, I don't think most people intend to hurt us. I really don't. I think most people are just lumbering along and have no idea of the effect that their life has on other people. And so if a person sins against you, oftentimes they don't even realize what they're doing. You, you have the option of saying, you know what? Love covers a multitude of sins. I'm going to just let this go and I'm going to keep on going. And I'm going to trust the Lord with how this all goes. Again, that's 1 Peter 4, 8. Love does cover a multitude of sins. You can choose not to take offense even though there has been an offense given. But he says, however, if your brother sins, whether specifically against you or if these words against you are not in the original, and there's a debate about whether or not they are, but even if it's sin in general, 
and it is not an, a minor offense that can be overlooked because sometimes they cannot be overlooked. The Lord tells us that those who are privy to this information, to this sin, He says, go and show Him His fault. Notice that He doesn't give us the option of sitting on it and growing bitter. That is not an option for the, for the believing church. We are commanded to take initiative. Again, if you cannot overlook the offense, if you cannot extend grace and, and forgive and show mercy, and there's something else that has to be done, the option is not to become bitter and to get angry and to do all these things against your own conscience now. Take action. He says here, go. Now, some of you might be intimidated to go, and I want to encourage you to be strong in the Lord. Trust Him that if He commands you to go, if you feel compelled in your conscience that you have to go, just go and trust Him. Go to your brother or your sister. And the reason that you're going is for the purpose of showing him or her their fault. Now, the word that's used in the Greek here is elenko, elenko, which means to expose or to bring to light. But within the context here, you're talking about revealing or reproving or rebuking or convicting. You are telling another person that they have committed sin. We read this in Ephesians 5.11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead, he says, even expose them. Expose sin. Don't allow sin to become buried and fester and go unchecked. This is what the prophet Nathan did when King David committed adultery with Bathsheba and even murdered her husband. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan goes to the king and retells the sin through a story. Just listen to how he does this. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. And he would eat, it would eat uh, bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare the wayfarer who came to him, and rather he took the, the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And he sets up this scenario, this scenario of this rich man with one little ewe lamb and a, or, or excuse me, of the poor man with one little ewe lamb and a rich man with much. And David hears of the vileness of taking that one ewe lamb and he becomes angry and he says, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. To which Nathan responds, you are the man. Oh, like a knife in his heart, right? And David, once he becomes convicted of that sin, he realizes that's him. That's what he has done. He becomes convicted of the sin. He melts into a puddle of tears, and we record his repentance in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is the, the prayer of repentance by David as soon as his sin has been exposed. And he cries out to God, Oh, wash me, O Lord, forgive me. Forgive my transgression. It's important to realize that if we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, we don't want to see them get caught or lost in a sin. We, wanna, we want the best for them, don't we? I don't want my brothers and sisters to struggle and lumber on in life, sin, sinning against themselves and against others. The most loving thing you could do is tell them the truth about their sin. Be honest with others. If you love them, be honest with them. In fact, I would argue that one of the most unloving things you could do is watch somebody struggling in sin and not do anything. 
Just let them wither away. I don't want to deal with this. That's a, that's a rat's nest. I don't want to even talk about that mess. And you watch them just destroy themselves, and you say nothing. There's a right way to go, and there's a wrong way to go. Let's talk about this. How should we be going to a brother or a sister who is in sin? I would contend that we are to go, number one, humbly, humbly. If you approach someone to convict, their, convict them of their sin, and there's even a hint of pride in you, it will backfire on you faster than you can say sack of Pharisees. It's just not going to happen. They will see your pride a mile away, and they're going to say, I don't even want to hear a word from you. So you can't go to somebody pridefully. Philippians 2, 3 says that we are to manifest a true humility of mind. Again, what Jesus says in verse 10 of Matthew 18, not to despise them, not to look down your nose at them, but with humility of mind, regard them as higher than yourself. And when you go to them in such a manner, you're not looking down saying, I got, a, I got some, something to talk about with you and your sin. You go to them humbly and say, brother or sister, I love you. And I know that I'm not an innocent person by any stretch, and if you see sin in me, then, but i got to talk to you about this thing that I'm seeing in you that's, that I can't ignore. You go humbly. You go below them, not from down above them. So, number one, humbly. Number two, go to them repentantly and not hypocritically. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, Jesus gave a vivid illustration back in Matthew chapter 7 regarding judging righteously, Jesus says to all of us, why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye and not notice the log that's in your own eye? And here's the principle. He says, first, take out the log from your own eye. Now, that doesn't mean that you stop there, but take out the log from your own eye. And then he says this, then you'll be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So you start with you first. If you're going to go confront somebody about their sin, you better make sure that you have gotten right with God about whatever your sins might be. And heaven forbid that the sin you're going to confront with them is a sin that you are manifesting in yourself right now. Heaven forbid that. Furthermore, we read in Matthew 5.23, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, someone has a, a bone to pick with you about some kind of sin you've committed, Jesus says, leave your offering there before the altar and go, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. So it works in the inverse as well. If you know someone has something against you, say they brought in a reproach against you and you've just blown them off and say, you know what, or, or maybe you know it's a problem, you know you sinned against them, they haven't had the courage to say anything yet, and you know it's eaten them alive and you don't say anything, and you're going to come to church and worship God and, and act holy, Jesus says, stop what you're doing, drop your Bible, drop your hymnal, go and, and seek forgiveness and repentance and reconciliation with that person. So we have to be very careful not to be hypocrites when we do this. It's really important. So before you go to your sinning brother, make sure that you haven't first sinned against them or have a bigger sin that has been, not been confessed first. So again, go repentantly, go not hypocritically. Number three, go prayerfully. Go prayerfully. Remember, we are following the Lord's plan. This is not how to get your pound of flesh. This is not revenge. This isn't vengeance done by the church. 
We're following the prescribed method of the Lord Jesus Christ on how He has commanded us to reconcile people back to ourselves and to Him. We're obedient children when we do this. And so if that's the case and we're following the Lord's plan to rescue the Lord's people, then you must be on your face before Him when you go and do such a thing. And so ask Him to give you the right heart. Lord, I don't, I don't know if I'm right in how I'm doing this, so, so please help me. I want to do this well, Lord. This might be the only shot to talk to this person about this thing that's eaten them alive, Lord. Help me. Your dependence on the Lord should be preeminent. Ask Him to convict you of your own sins first. Lord, I'm about to go and talk to my brother who I love, but Lord, heaven forbid, please convict me first. If I'm in the wrong, Lord, show me. I don't want to go and make a fool out of myself or make a fool out of you. Help, ask to, for help to understand them fully. That's, that's really important too. Lord, don't let me go in there and just judge them. I want to understand them, Lord. Maybe I'm missing something. And maybe you need to give me the eyes to see. I want to understand them and I want to have their heart, Lord. You're praying fervently. Pray that He gives you the right words as we saw with Nathan and David. Nathan obviously had prepared what he was going to say. You think that Nathan, by the way, that's I think I'm who I'm named after, by the way. So I'm the guy that goes and confronts kings about their sin. That's a real great job. Nathan, you think he was a little bit nervous about confronting King David, God's anointed, the one who's after God's own heart? You think he was bothered by that? You imagine he probably had days and weeks of not sleeping at night, contemplating, how do I do this? How do I go to my king, the one I respect, the one the Lord has anointed? How do I go to him and tell him he's wrong? So he certainly prayerfully and carefully, meditatively went through all of this. He didn't wing it, and I would encourage you, don't wing it as well. Proverbs 20, uh, uh, 14, 22, those who planned what is good find love and faithfulness. Ask the Lord for help. Ask him for his help. Pray fervently before you go. And I would even add to this, pray with them while you're there. Pray with them. Don't just swing in, drop a bomb, and leave. Pray with them. And then also pray with them after you leave and in the days that follow. Pray for their heart. Pray for their repentance. Pray for their reconciliation. Number four, go lovingly. Go lovingly. There are several places in Scripture that speak to the condition of our own hearts as we go. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24-25 tells uh, Timothy, or, uh, yeah, Timothy to go patiently, to be gentle as he rebukes, and he says that God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Patience, gentleness, that's a loving heart. Or even Galatians 6, 1 and 2, brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself that you will not be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. And what is the law of Christ? It's the law of love, the law of love. And so we are to go to them in a loving spirit, a gentle spirit, a patient spirit, being so careful that we are not ourselves guilty of the same thing. And so go to a sinning brother or sister humbly, repentantly, lovingly, and then number, number five, privately, privately. Jesus says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. This is really important. Were you to confront a person in front of a whole crowd, 
it would most likely embarrass them and shame them, but probably for the wrong reasons. This is how this usually goes. They're not going to necessarily feel shame over their sin that's being brought up. They're going to feel shame because they're being confronted publicly and humiliated. If I were to pick on someone in the room here and, and bring them up in front of the congregation and say, I'm going to tell you something, they're, they're, they're not, they don't know. They're going to win a car. They don't know what, the, what it is. And all of a sudden, I drop the bomb, you're in sin, and I know all about it. And I blast them in front of the entire congregation. They're not even, they're not even thinking about the sin. They're thinking about what just happened. And I will ruin them for the rest of their life. They'll never, they'll never forget the time that they got blasted in front of the entire congregation. We cannot do this first publicly. And I've seen churches that have done this, and it is wrong, wrong, wrong. We are to go to somebody privately. Again, the method is to restore them gently. These are Jesus' beloved, beloved children. Gently to make repentance as easy as possible. I'll say that again, to make repentance as easy as possible. This is an exercise of mercy. Mercy. Has not God shown mercy to us? Should we not also show mercy to others? If you can approach them privately and they can repent and be restored quietly without the whole world having to know about their sin, that's better, isn't it? Because think with me, and I want you to really think about this. What is the worst thing that you've ever done in your entire life? Now, as you ponder what the worst thing that you regret the most, think about this. Would you want that sin publicized? Would you want people to know about it? Let me tell you, it makes restoration harder, way harder. It makes recovery more difficult. See, God knows how we're built. He built us. He knows what it takes. And He knows and has a merciful plan a merciful plan that when we sin against Him, our, our, even, in this, even in this covenant, the new covenant that we're in, we're not taking a, a, a lamb or a cow or a bull to the temple to be slaughtered to confess our sins publicly. Our sins are covered by the blood of Christ. And so He gives us a mercy of having our sins confronted in private by other beloved believers who know us, and to be restored gently and quietly and through earnest repentance. And here's the thing, don't we do that with our children? When, you're, when your child sins, and even if you're in a public place, now maybe some of you have done this, and, I don't, and this is not a judgment on you, but when your child does something wrong in public, you don't stop in the middle of a crowded room and take him to task, do you? I mean, maybe sometimes we do, if we're not thinking straight, but don't we pull them off to the side? Don't we pull them off to the side and, and kneel down and confront them and talk to them? Now, I'm not making a judgment on your parenting style. Maybe there's an effective method of shaming them publicly, but the bottom line is that don't we desire tenderness for our own children? Don't we desire to not humiliate them in front of their friends? Don't we desire for their hearts to be turned back to us in the easiest way possible? If we desire that kind of love and tenderness and mercy for our own children, then what does God desire for us as His children? And what should we desire also for His children? No, we are to be rebuking those and correcting those sins privately. Now, I want to say here, with all that, that there are times when a particular sin is egregious and a sin that affects others and needs to be made public. For example, 
If a predator has abused a child, that is not something you deal with privately and quietly. You make that as loud as possible. You go to the authorities and you bring that out in public. Again, there's a grander context of how these kinds of sins are dealt with. But what we're talking primarily about here, what Jesus is referring to here, is not grievous sins that have to be dealt with on a a large scale. He's talking about interpersonal sins. He's talking about sins against one another, sins that could have been dealt with on a, a much better way, but now they've gotten out of control, and now you have to go and actually confront a person. He's talking about personal relationships here. He notes here, if he listens, if your brother or sister, if you confront them and they listen to you, guess what? You've won your brother. This phrase, if he listens, that's not just, did he hear you out? There's more than that. Does he actually respond in repentance? Does he respond in godly obedience? And he says, if he does, you've won your brother. The Greek word that's used here for one, W-O-N, one, literally means to gain. It's like you're adding wealth to yourself now. You've gained, you've taken on more. Not just in a general sense, not just that we have all gained our brother or sister back, it's actually a more personal sense than that. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times, but a brother is born for adversity. There's something, there's something about going through an ordeal with somebody else that solidifies a friendship. When you have gone through some kind of a, uh, an ordeal with another person, that's why you always hear about brothers in arms. When soldiers go to battle together and they're, they're hunkered down in a, in a foxhole somewhere and they're getting shot at, there's a bond that takes place in that foxhole. They become a lot closer when they think that they're about to die together. There's something that happens spiritually. When you lead a person to repentance, not only have you won them over to the Lord and to the truth, you win them to yourself. If they listen and they respond to you and you pray together, let me tell you, a prayer of repentance when you have brought something to a brother or sister, that is the sweetest prayer there is. Because not only are they weeping over their repentance, you find yourself weeping over their restoration. And you don't go out of there puffed up and prideful, I I did another one for the kingdom, I got another brother. You You don't come away like that. You come away praising God, crying on, your, on the car ride home, saying, Lord, thank you. Thank you for letting me be part of that. Thank you for restoring them. Oh, I love them so much. I'm so grateful they have come back. That's how it works. There, there's brotherhood. There's sisterhood. Now, again, obviously, only God can convict of sin. Only God can change hearts. We're not the ones who are doing it, right? But we become God's ordained agents of reconciliation. God allows us to be part of the blessing of restoring them back. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 talks about yielding his own freedom in order that he might win people to the Lord. James 5 says the same thing, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Isn't that what we want? Don't we want to win brothers and sisters back from sinfulness and back from waywardness? And once we've turned them back to the truth, we're commanded to just pick up and keep on going. Because the temptation then, because we, we become prideful. We're prideful people, human beings. The temptation is to be like, well, there, 
I did my job, now don't you forget it, right? We do that in our own sick heads. But Luke 17, 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him, just like that. And you move on. You move on. The word of gentle, loving reconciliation, that's a work of the Lord. And yet, I believe there are some cautions to be considered. There are some things we need to watch out for because, again, we can do this wrong, and so many throughout the course of church history have done this wrong. And what is the purpose of going verse by verse through the book of Scripture, going verse by verse through Matthew 18? We need to take instruction, and we need to apply these things to our own lives. My pastoral desire is that this church, Harvest Bible Church, excels still more in the work of reconciliation. Because here's the thing. We already sin against each other. It happens all the time. Sometimes I hear about it, sometimes I don't, but I know it happens. But the question is, when it does happen, what do we do? Now, when we do it well, praise the Lord. And I really do praise Him. When brothers and sisters are reconciled and, and it goes well, and they, they, they figure out the problem, they move ahead, I genuinely, I praise God. Thank you, Lord, that so-and-so and so-and-so, they figured it out and they worked it out and they can move ahead and, and rebuild their relationship. Praise the Lord. But here's what happens when we do it wrong. It's, it gets very bad. And so I want to give you three ditches to avoid, three things to avoid here. Number one, don't ignore the problem if you know you should do something. Again, if someone sins against you and you're able to overlook it and forgive, that's one thing. If you overlook a trespass, well, praise the Lord. But if someone is caught in sin and you don't say anything, you're simply allowing them to hurt themselves and others. Again, you might be scared to say something. I mean, going and confronting somebody about sin, that's not fun. That's not the way I want to spend a sunny afternoon, right? But if we don't say something, we're just consigning them to that fate of of wallowing in that sin. Ask the Lord to give you courage. Ask Him to give you courage. Remember, you're being obedient to the Lord, to the Scriptures, by going to your brother and sister in love Trust the Lord with the results, and even if they don't repent, even if it blows up in your face and you go to them and say, look, I love you, here's the sin that I've observed in you, and I'm I'm calling you to repent of this sin, to stop, turn away, and come back. If If they tell you off and kick you out of their house, at least you have been faithful. At least you have been faithful. And frankly, my friends, you don't know the seeds that you're sowing. You don't know the, the position you might be in. Maybe someone else comes along after you. And that becomes the evidence of two or three witnesses. You don't know. Or maybe after you leave, a month later, they become convicted and they come back to you. You just don't know. You don't know the plan of God, and so be faithful. Don't ignore the problem if you see it and you know that it needs to be dealt with. Number two, things to avoid. When you're made aware of someone else's sin, don't talk about it with others. That's called gossip. Don't do it. And we have all kinds of sneaky ways for justifying gossip. I'm only telling someone else all their dirt so they can pray for them. We say we do that game. Don't do that. God is not mocked. God knows our games. He knows our techniques. He knows what we're doing. Don't do it. And sadly, this is a pervasive problem in the church. And I would even add, according to Scripture, according to Scripture, this is a problem even with women. So much so that Titus 2.3 goes out of its way to instruct older women to be reverent in their behavior, 
not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, but teaching what is good. And if Scripture gives such a warning like that, we would do, be well to be vigilant against such things and not to allow ourselves to become caught up in gossip. Don't share the sins and problems of other people with other people. Instead, go to them directly in love, and if they repent, let it be done. No one else ever has to know about that person's sin. They've been restored to God. They've been restored with you. Move on. Do not tell other people. Don't gossip and slander other people. Third ditch to avoid. Number three, don't go looking for faults in others. Don't try to be the other person's Holy Spirit. That's not our job. In fact, in fact, 1 Peter 4.15 warns against being what the Bible calls a troublesome meddler. A troublesome meddler. Now, there are many applications of that phrase, but it includes prying into the affairs of other people looking for trouble. Now, you might say, well, I'm just trying to help them deal with their sins. I care about their holiness. But don't you recall Jesus' words in Matthew 7, 1? Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the same way that you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And so, if you go digging around in other people's lives looking for their sins, don't be surprised if someone comes digging around in your life to look at your sins. So be very careful about this. Again, remember, all of us have sins, and we are all in desperate need of mercy. Are we not all in need of mercy and grace and kindness? I know I certainly am. Now, what if the person being approached for correction if, what if, I, I should rephrase that, what if you're the person who's being approached for correction? How should you be? Because again, we all got to pay the piper somehow, right? It's, it's all, we're all going to get confronted at some point in our life about something, maybe more times than, than one. But how should we be? When someone comes to you, to me, how should we be when we are being confronted? First of all, remember that the believer who's coming to you is doing so in love, and they likely took a lot of courage to approach you. They probably didn't come to you because they wanted to. They came to you because they had to. And so be gracious to them and hear them out. Even if you think it's totally bonkers and you don't, you're thinking, that's not my sin at all. Hear them out anyway. Be gracious and hear them out. Next, consider what they say. Even if in the moment you just don't feel convicted, go home and pray about it anyway. And ask the Lord to convict you if you've sinned. I'll give you an example. And I'm not going to use any names here because that's just too much fun, right? No, this happened to me in real life. A, a, a very good friend of mine, we were having some, some conflict and we were just rubbing each other the wrong way. We've been friends for years and we just rubbing each other the wrong way and didn't really know what was going on. Well, one day he came to me. He muscled up the courage to come to me and he convicted me. He told me about all my pride and all my arrogance. And I thought to myself, I don't really think I'm prideful and arrogant. And I'm thinking this guy is prideful and arrogant, right? And I'm doing the same thing. And he says this, he goes, well, here, here's the problem, Nate. Here's the problem. You don't see your own sin because you're here, down here, and I'm up here. He literally did this. And I just looked at him. And I went, you got to be out of your mind. Now, I wanted to you know, play the game of you know, doing that whole. But I went home, and I, I couldn't, I said, the audacity of that guy to sit there and tell me how prideful and arrogant I am. Does he have any idea how prideful and arrogant he is? And then I, I talked to my wife, and I said, what do you think? Am I prideful and arrogant? She's like, I don't know. You know she's not, not going to answer me that. 
But I, I prayed about it. I, I went to the Lord and I prayed about it. I'm thinking, this guy's off his rocker, but you know, just in case, right? Well, I prayed. Lo and behold, boy, let me tell you, I'm the most prideful person in this room. I was convicted, even though it was through the mouth of a donkey. I was convicted. <laughs> Doesn't the Lord speak through those kinds of people? You guys hear donkeys preach every week, so come on. I was convicted that I was prideful. And so a couple months later, we actually got together for lunch. And he sat down with me, I sat down with him, and he, he came to me and says, you know, he goes, I, I need to apologize to you. He goes, I, I try to convict you of being prideful, and I, I'm actually the one who's prideful. And I said, brother, I can't believe you're saying this because I, I feel convicted as well. And the Lord worked reconciliation. We hugged each other, we prayed together, we confessed to each other, and we had a great lunch. So you just don't know. Just because in the moment you don't feel convicted, you just don't know. Ask the Father. He will show you your sin, even through the most unimaginable means. Examine your heart. And again, if you find that you're guilty of sin, repent. Turn from your sin. If you're struggling, ask for help. A person comes to you and you're struggling, go back to them. I'm really struggling with what you said to me. Help, me. help me understand. What do you see that I don't see? And maybe, maybe you are the one who tags another person in. What, what do you see in me that they're talking about? Because again, remember, the goal is to be more like Christ. I want to be more like Jesus. And I know I'm not even close to being like Him yet. After all, the Bible says, remember, there is joy in heaven when a sinner repents. Now, all of this, this discipline that we're talking about, church discipline, Hebrews 12 says that while it's happening to us, it does not feel joyful at all, does it? It feels pretty painful. But when we've been changed and grown, the Bible says it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Don't we want to experience the fruit of righteousness? And again, even this is Mother's Day, moms who are teaching their children these things, and it's not just for moms, but Aren't aren't the mothers here in the room, aren't they the ones that are home with our kids, working these very simple things out with them? They sin against their siblings, they sin against their friends. Aren't we the ones that are teaching them how to do this? Shouldn't we be the model of what repentance and reconciliation looks like to our kids? And so this is beneficial for all of us to experience this joyful, beautiful peace of righteousness. Well, What if you know you're in sin, but have never confessed to the Lord? What if you don't even know what I'm talking about? If you feel that twinge, that sting of sin, that, you know what, I've never been forgiven by God ever. Well, let me tell you, there's there's some good news for you. Jesus Christ, who is God Himself, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ came to earth, never once sinned, never had to apologize or ask forgiveness from anybody. But he himself, perfectly righteous, gave up his life on the cross and died as a sacrifice for our sins. And through his sacrifice, we have enough payment, enough shed blood to cover our sins. We have enough that any and all of our sins can be forgiven. And all you must do is recognize your need for the Savior, recognize you have to be forgiven, and turn, repent of your sins, Cast them away from yourself. Lord, I've sinned against you. Forgive me. 
And as you do that, you are trusting in Jesus by faith. Jesus, you are my righteousness. You died for me. You paid the price for me. I trust you to give me eternal life. The Bible says if you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ, you will have eternal life. And by the, by the way, Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified, declared righteous before God by the cross, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And because we have peace with God, guess what? We can have peace with one another. It's only through the sacrifice, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that any of this is even possible. But praise the Lord that because of Christ, we do have reconciliation. Let's aim or strive to that aim. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again. We thank you that a day like today, we get to come here together to study the Scriptures together, and we get to see our need not just to confess our sins and to be made right with you through Christ, but also we see our need as brothers and sisters to love each other enough to be honest when we see another brother or sister caught in a trespass. Lord, this is such shaky territory for us because, Lord, we are broken vessels. You have the right to come to any of us with full conviction, with full righteousness, with full purity, and convict us. But, Lord, that you would use us as agents of reconciliation. Lord, who am I? Who am I to talk to another believer about their sin? And yet, you still put that responsibility, that blessed burden onto us, lowly sinners to confront others who are caught. And Lord, I believe, and the Scriptures teach that we do this because this is the way that we foster and grow unity. This is the way that we get to to actively love each other, to be honest with each other. And Lord, I pray that You would guard us, guard us against laziness, guard us against fault-finding and being a troublesome meddler, guard us against gossip and slander, slander that will tear the church apart. Lord, protect us from those things, but help us to love each other with with an abounding love, a love that is Christ-like love. Help us to obey You as we seek one another's benefit. And I just, I praise You so much that You do give us the blessing of being part of each other's lives in a very real and tangible way, O Lord. And Lord, that You would convict us of our sins, that you would restore us gently, mercifully, and we know that you do through Christ. What an amazing gift of reconciliation that you have given to us through our blessed Savior. Help us to walk in that righteousness. Help us to walk in that faith and in that obedience. We thank you so much for what you've done for us, and we pray that you'd help us to extend such kindness to others. We do all this in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.